Wow. I can't tell you how surprised I am to see you here today. I thought it would be like me and my wife if she managed to slide in and a few people who got here before the weather hit. So, hey, I'm glad you're here. Parents, how was FX? Was it good? Good. <laughs> I think. I'm sure it was awesome. Welcome to 2015. Do you remember what we were doing one year ago today? We were all sitting at home. That, that was the first polar vortex. We actually were at the Fizey building on Saturday night. Does this ring any bells with you? We canceled church on Sunday morning, and it was horrible. So hopefully this will be a better 2015 than it was 2014. Though I admit I do like the snow, so I'm torn. And, and I think about the new year every year. We do this every year, and it's, to me it's kind of like, what's different from December 31st and January 1st? Why do we put so much import on a new year? It's same as the day before, maybe a little more daylight. I know there's just something about like a blank calendar and a new year. It just feels like a fresh start. Like there's some opportunities to do things differently in the new year, things that we didn't get done in the past year, or maybe we can do things better than we did. So maybe for you, a new year is like for me. It feels like a fresh start, a new beginning. Like this is going to be the year. I know maybe some of you made some goals or resolutions or commitments. Anybody besides me? Three of us. <laughs> We're we're so motivated here. But it, maybe you did, and you're just embarrassed to say because you've already dropped some of your resolutions. I understand that. It's a, maybe you've decided to start something new this year. Maybe for you, the new thing you're starting is like a new diet, exercise plan, budget, class, anything. Yeah, It's a great time to start. Maybe for some of you, like your commitment was, I'm going to go to church this year. So maybe welcome to church if that's you, or back to church. I'm glad you're here. Maybe something here will make you want to come back for a second or third time, I hope. <laughs> If um, maybe you've decided this is the year I want to get closer to God, so like Brian was talking about earlier, maybe this is the year you said, I'm going to start reading this thing, or I'm going to get back into reading this thing. And so if that's you, great. Or if you're starting to pray more, or this is the year you're going to get into a life group, we want to help you with that. So I'm I'm standing behind you and with you. This is a great time to get some good things started in your life. This is a great time to maybe start giving some things up. A lot of people do that in the new year too. We're going to quit something. I started thinking back in October or November, this might be a good year, 2015, to give up soda. So I'm thinking about this in October, November, and here's how my mind works. I'm just a little bit um, messed up. But if I've got a challenge in front of me that's daunting or scary, I have to embrace it immediately. So I was in like December, just a few weeks ago, thinking, if I'm going to be giving up soda, I don't know if I can do that. Maybe I ought to just go ahead and start now while the pressure's off. Because I really have to start January 1st. What if I start now and just get in early? So that way, if I fail, it's okay. And then here's another way my mind is crazy. If I'm going to quit soda, why don't I just go ahead and give up caffeine too and um, chocolate and coffee, even decaf. I do all those things myself. And I'm thinking, that's a great idea, Brian. Why don't you give all those things up at the same time? That's not a great idea. (laughs) It's not. I do not recommend that. That was the hardest two hours of my life. (laughs) Actually, I, I made it four days. Don't judge. I'm back on the do. I had a sip before I came in. I admit it. Uh, and, and, and I just remember thinking, this is stupid. This is like day four, and I'm still having the caffeine withdrawal headache. Like, why am I giving up chocolate? This is just dumb. <laughs> so I'm with you. If you're deciding to give something up for the new year, I stand with you in understanding how hard that is. The number one resolution of giving things up, quitting smoking, I understand how hard that is. So if you're quitting something, like you're like, I'm going to quit spending too much money. I'm going to quit overeating. I'm going to quit yelling at my kids so much, what, whatever it is you said I'm going to quit doing, I understand that that's a difficult thing. And, you know, if you've, you've made some commitments maybe to embrace some healthier things this year, 
this message series is for you. Now's a good time. We're going to look at some things that will help make your life better and move you closer to God over the next several weeks. And I encourage you to keep coming. Invite some people maybe who need to hear this kind of thing. But I do want to acknowledge, and I already am, that if you decide to make some change in your life, you know you're fighting an uphill battle. There's something in all of us that resists change, even in the positive direction. And some things are just sometimes you just you, you try. And, and it's easy for somebody to stand and tell you what you ought to do. But when you're the one trying to make the change, it's very easy to come to the conclusion, this is, it is what it is. I am just who I am, and I'm not going to change because this is too hard. I was having a conversation a few years ago with a friend, and she was talking about a conversation she had with another friend. And for many years, they'd had a very difficult relationship, these two people. And she was telling me, like, there came a point where they had a really difficult conversation, and it looked like a breakthrough was coming. And my friend said to her friend, you know, maybe we ought to go ahead and take the next step, and maybe we ought to, like, continue to talk about this, maybe even talk to a counselor or somebody just to kind of help mediate between us and just figure some of these things out. And it looked like her friend was taking her seriously. And then she said, so it's like a curtain came down, a wall went up. She's like, no, not going to do that. I am how I am. It's too late now. I'm not going to change by now. If I haven't changed by now, it's not going to get any better. We're not doing this. You know, it's very easy to believe that. Pastor Kyle Eidemann points out that one of, the Satan, one of Satan's favorite lies to whisper in our ear is, it's too late to change. It's too late. If you were going to change, you would have changed a long time ago. It's just not going to happen. It is what it is. And you know, he, he points out too, the longer you hear that lie, the longer you say that to yourself, the more true it seems to be. You know, it's too late for my kids. You know, I had my chance, but they're, they're older now, and it's just not going to happen. Uh, the marriage is too cold. There's no way to retrieve this thing. The, my friend is just too mad, too angry. There's nothing we can do to reconcile. The, the debt, man, it's just too overwhelming. No one could pay that thing off. This addiction is just too powerful. It's just going to be a part of my life for the rest of my life. Reputation is too shot. Nobody's going to come back from that. So many times we tell ourselves it is what it is. It's just never going to change. You know, you can talk about fresh start all you want, but it's just not going to happen for me. And it's a lie that Satan whispers to you every time you do try to take a positive step in the right direction and do something better for yourself, move you closer to God. And the more you hear it, the more true it seems. You just think, no, you're, this is just not how it's going to be. If you have a Bible this morning, I want to take you to a real-life story of somebody who had a, an incredible life change happen. And honestly, it was a guy who probably never expected his life to ever change for the better. And we're going to be looking in John chapter 5 today. And by the way, table of contents is always fair game here. So if you want to look in there, if you've got a smartphone with a Bible app, you want to pull up John chapter 5. You're not looking for 1 John, 2 John, or 3 John. You just want plain old John, the gospel of John. Now John was like a, a really good friend with Jesus, probably Jesus' best friend. And he followed him around at least for his entire preaching and teaching ministry. And he later wrote this gospel, this biography of Jesus' life. Like, here's what I heard Jesus teach. Here's the things I saw him do. Here are some of the miracles he performed. And so John records something that he actually was there for, probably. John chapter 5. I want to show you a man whose life totally changed when he ran into Jesus. So starting in verse 1, it says this, Sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for a feast of the Jews. Now there is in Jerusalem near the Sheep Gate a pool which in Aramaic is called Bethesda, which is surrounded by five color, covered colonnades. And here a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, and the paralyzed. And one who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. 
And I just want to hit pause on this for a second. Let's get some context here. It says that Jesus went up to Jerusalem for a feast of the Jews. Jerusalem was the center of Israel, the nation of Israel, as a capital. It was also the center of their worship. This feast that Jesus was going up to celebrate may have been Passover. People would come from all over the nation. Sometimes people would come from all over the world in the Jewish faith to come worship God at the temple and offer sacrifices to God. So this was a big deal. And so we have Jesus here celebrating at the temple. And he goes to this place. It's near the Sheep Gate which is probably called that because the lambs that were going to be sacrificed at the temple were brought in through this gate and on into the temple area. And there's this covered pool with, uh, with these colonnades around it, five of them, and it's called Bethesda. And it's a place where invalids would come. This is a model of what it may have looked like. It's uh, something, it's just a very beautiful place. And so as you look at this, though, there's all these people who are handicapped gathering here. And I've got a couple of questions here. Why does this place, of all the places in Jerusalem, become the place that invalids show up? Disabled people every day, why do they end up at the Bethesda pool near the Sheep Gate? And here's another question for me. If you were following along in here, what happened to verse 4 in the Bible? Go back and look. It's not there. You go straight from verse 3 to verse 5. Where did verse 4 go? I can answer both of those questions, and the answer is actually in the footnote of your Bible. Verse 4 is down there, and it describes both why the people would gather there and it describes why it's not actually in the text of your Bible. You'll notice there what it says is the earliest and most reliable manuscripts don't have verse 4 in them. In other words, John probably didn't write that himself. Here's maybe what happened. Somebody knew the story about what happened at Bethesda, and they wrote it in the margin of their manuscript of John's Gospel. Later scholars, as they were copying it, just copied it into the flow of the text, and it became part of it. But we know some of the earliest copies we have of the Gospel of John, some of which were written within and copied within 20 to 30 years of John's actual original manuscript, they don't have that verse. It doesn't mean that it's not true. It actually is a true reflection of what people thought in that day. And what it tells us is, People believed that from time to time an angel from God would come down and tap the water of the pool of Bethesda. First person in the water got healed. Not saying that's actually something that happened. That's just what people believed happened, which explains why people gathered there. Just follow me with this. Do you actually believe that anybody got healed there? I mean, is that how God would choose to heal people? Seems a little cruel to me. We're going to take a bunch of handicapped people. We're going to say, all right, all of you who are blind and those of you who are crippled and can't walk, line up. We're going to have a race. First person in the water gets healed, go. Really? Nobody, as far as we know, ever actually got healed here. It's just that people thought they got healed there, and so people would show up every day. It's kind of like playing the lotto. You've got a better chance of getting struck by lightning than winning the lottery. But you never know, so you just keep scratching. Maybe nobody's ever got healed here, but my brother's cousin's friend said that he heard of a guy who knew a guy who maybe, they just keep showing up because you never know. What if it works? This might be my day. And so they show up. After a while, I just got to believe all these people showed up at the same place because it's just something to do. It's just part of their routine every day. Get up, go to the pool at Bethesda, wait for an angel to touch the water and try to be the first person in. It's just a way of life. Go beg for help from God. Go beg for money from other people. Go home. Lather, rinse, repeat. This is doing it every day. So in this context, we meet a man here who's been lame for 38 years, maybe has been hanging out at the pool at Bethesda for 38 years. And uh, 
can't get in the water, as we find out later, because everybody beats him into the water if it ripples. Do you think that this guy got up every morning full of optimism? Did he look in the mirror at his sink and go, this is your day. You're getting healed today, buddy. Or had he just kind of given that up, it was just a place to go and hang out and talk to other invalids every day and just part of his routine. I don't know. I do know this. Look in verse 6. We do know that Jesus met him here. So in verse 6 it says, When Jesus saw him lying there, learned that he'd been in this condition for a long time, Jesus asked him, Do you want to get well? Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water's stirred. When I'm trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. <laughs> Jesus asked an interesting question here. Do you want to get well? Seems like it's a little insensitive question to ask to a paralyzed man, right? Do you want to get well? Sounds kind of like asking a Cubs fan, do you want to win the World Series? <laughs> sorry, sorry. My New Year's commitment was I wasn't going to do jokes about Cubs fans, so I see where I'm at. Put this in a little more serious context. Would you go up to the parents on the other side of the glass from the NICU or PICU, the pediatric intensive care unit, and say, do you want your child to get better? Would you say that, really? Would you ask a man who's been paralyzed for 38 years, do you want to get better? Doesn't that seem a little insensitive, a little callous, a little bit rude? Just time out on this. I've been following Jesus for almost four decades now, doing the best I can to, to study what he taught, to do what he said, to you know, just know him. One of the things I can say definitely about Jesus in my experience is the guy is not rude. I've never had that experience of Jesus. Even people who hated him and wanted to kill him, Jesus was not rude or insensitive to them. So there's obviously something else going on here when Jesus asked this question. I found Jesus to be wise and sensitive, and I find this question to be wise and sensitive, and here's how I know. Listen again to the, the dialogue. Do you want to get better? I can't. Every time I try to get in the water, somebody beats me. So the guy doesn't, doesn't answer sarcastically, yeah, I want to get healed. No, Jesus, I don't want to get better. I just come here to the pool to work on my tan every day. He answers Jesus, and he says, I, I basically, I can't get in the water. And so Jesus, I think, recognized something when he asked this question. And I'm with Kyle Eidemann again on his take on this. The longer I'm in ministry, the more convinced I am. There are some people who honestly just don't want to get better. They say they do, but nothing in their actions actually says that they want to get better. A lot of people like to show up at the pool every day and hang out, listen to the sermons, take copious notes. Do they ever do anything with what they hear? No. But they're showing up at the pool every day and they're saying they want to get better. So when Jesus, who, by the way, just keep this, in my view, Jesus has the absolute ability to make this guy healed, to make him able to walk. So when that Jesus says to a guy, do you want to be better? Jesus is acknowledging that sometimes people really don't want to get better. And so Jesus is, in asking this question, respecting this man's right to choose his future. Because as bad as it sounds, some people, given the opportunity, don't want to get better. They just want to stay the same. Which then puzzles me. Like, why in the world would anybody say no to an opportunity to have a better future? Why would anybody, when given the opportunity, say, no thanks? Well, for some people, I think it's just a fear of change. I mean, take this guy, for example. What's he known for at least 38 years of his life? He knows how to do handicapped. He knows how to, to live this life. And it's not a great life. It's not the best life, but it's a life that he understands. It's a life that he knows. He may have a little bit of fear as to, 
I don't know how to do life if I'm responsible for myself totally. I, uh, I've been around in life. I'm not going to tell you how old I am, but I'm, I'm old enough that I remember life before debit cards. Anybody else? Some of you just grew up with debit cards, and that's fine, but I got my debit card in college because they mailed it to me from my bank. I didn't want it. I just, oh, here it is. And I didn't use it for a long time. I fully understood that it's preferable to have a card than to stand there and write a check at Walmart. I understood how amazing it is to have access to your money in your checking or savings account wherever you're at. I was just scared that the first time I actually went to use an ATM card at the ATM that I would do it wrong. I really, I still remember thinking this. I was afraid I'd punch the numbers in wrong and lights would go off and all my money would go to somebody else's account. <laughs> right? I just, literally a friend from college had to walk with me to the ATM. You're using this thing, buddy. Walk up there and help me push the buttons. That is how I started using debit. Now we're all afraid to use them for a different reason. Like hackers, you know, Target and Snooks and all that, but... I remember that fear of change. Even though it's clearly a preferable future, I was scared to step into it. So a lot of us, maybe, maybe you want to make some changes, but what's holding you back is fear because the life you've got, it's not great, but you understand it. The things you do create a lot of stress and anxiety, but it's under your control and you've learned to deal with it and you've learned to manage it and it's just kind of what you know and it works. You understand that Yelling at your kids to get them to do what you want is probably not the best motivation, but it works, and it's what your parents did, and you turned out okay. So, Because to take the risk of saying, I'm going to do this, and I'm going to talk to this person, and open up and share some of our struggles, that's just too scary because you don't know where that's going to end up and how to do life that way. So I'll, I'll just stick with what I've always done. Thank you very much. <laughs> so There's a fear of change, and I totally get that. There's also, let's just be honest, a little bit of a, a fear of, losing some of the benefits that come along with being unhealthy. This guy's been crippled for 38 years. He's still alive. Somebody's feeding him. Somebody's making sure he's clothed. Somebody makes sure he doesn't die of exposure. Somebody's taking care of this guy. There may be a little bit of a, what do I do if I'm suddenly responsible for myself? And again, I'm not judging. I totally understand the pull of this. Several years ago, I had a couple of knee surgeries because I had an accident, basically. And I remember life after surgery like I came home from my second surgery and like the guys in the youth group mowed our grass and took care of our landscaping it was hot that summer that was nice the day I came home from surgery a lady from church brought over homemade cinnamon rolls Mm. one of my colleagues went and got my meds at the pharmacy for me and and picked up some snacks and some Mountain Dew that was great and laying on the couch all I had to do was go oh and Kirsten was immediately there what do you need I can't reach the remote. <laughs> Primo parking spots. I wanted to get better, but if you had asked me in that moment, do you want to get well? There was at least a part of me that would have said, I don't think so. I like being taken care of and the lower expectations and, and the, the things that come along with it. It's not a great life and it hurts, but there are some good things that come along with this too. And, and you know what I'm saying? There. There may be some things that just says, I'm not sure that I want to give up the things I get by being the way I am right now. I think there might be something else at work in our lives too. It's probably at work in this guy. There's the pull of inertia. Because when you've been one way long time, it's hard to go and be another way. I've heard somebody call this the as now, so then principle. However you are now and whatever you choose to do right now is what you will end up doing in the future. As now, so then. Just think of your snooze button. 
If you hit the snooze button once, how many times will you hit it? <laughs> right? It's, it's whatever you're doing right now is what you'll be doing in the future. The best predictor of future is now. So if, you, if you're not doing things now in your New Year's resolutions or your fresh start, and you're saying, well, I'll, I'll do that next week, you're not going to get to it next week. If you're saying, you know, I really do think things need to change in my family or my budget or my whatever, if you're not willing to do it right now, if you're saying, you know, we'll get to that a month from now, you're not going to get to it as now, so then. Whatever we do, it's the pull of inertia keeping you right where you're at. <laughs> and John Ortberg tells a story about a guy who used to live in Los Angeles, and he went back through his old neighborhood like 20 years after they'd moved out of their house. And he said, I, just, I went by, and my house was still there. Nostalgia kicked in. I went and knocked on the door, and the people who lived there said, well, come on in. You want to see your house now? Yeah. He went up to, he had had a room up in the attic, and he went up there, and his room was still there. There were still a couple of boxes that his family hadn't taken when they'd moved. So he was like looking through it, and he found one of his old jackets, put it on, stuck his hands in his pockets, found a little receipt from where his mom had taken a pair of shoes down to a shoe store to be repaired. And he went through the neighborhood, and he drove down there, and the shop was still there. Same old guy was still in there fixing shoes. He pulled out his receipt as a joke. He put it on the counter and said, I'd like to pick up my shoes. The guy said, just a second took him seriously, took the ticket back in the back room, came back out and said, come back a week from Thursday and they'll be done. <laughs> 20 years and a week from Thursday to do these. Whatever you're doing now is what you're going to end up doing in the future. The time to change now. You've got to fight against that pull of inertia, but sometimes it's so hard. It's easier to stay put. Here's another reason why sometimes I don't think we make the changes that we really recognize we need to make, and that's just the, the denial of reality. We just don't want to admit that it's as bad as it is. We experience this denial. We don't want to see how bad it's become. A documentary describes something that happened back in 1991. There's a 34-year-old woman who had surgery in Palo Alto, California, and she set medical history because she had a 300-pound ovarian tumor removed from her body. And no, I will not have pictures or video. You can thank me later. This poor woman when she had the surgery and had this 300-pound tumor removed from her body, the tumor was almost twice as large as she was. When she left the operating room on one stretcher, the tumor left on another stretcher. How do you get to the point where a, a little petite woman has a 300-pound tumor and hasn't got medical attention before then? That's what the documentary was about. Initially, the tumor wasn't 300 pounds. It didn't start that way. It was just a little thing, and she started to notice a little discomfort, whichever side it was on, and she said it started a little bit, and she thought, hmm, that's not good. I better watch this and make sure it doesn't get worse. So she just, you know, oftentimes we do this too, right? Something's not quite right. Let's just give it a little time. The kids are kind of being a little difficult. Let's just give it a little time, see if it resolves itself. The marriage, it's, we're having a little spats. Let's just give it a little time. Our finances, let's just see how 2015 starts, which oftentimes giving something a little bit of time is the right answer. But then the tumor continued to grow. Things started to get out of hand. Time wasn't going to fix this. And then it became a matter of embarrassment. How do you go to the doctor? How do you go to your family and admit that you've let something go this long without seeking attention and medical care? Buy bigger clothes hide it? How do you admit that the debt has grown to that level? How do you admit that the addiction has got this far out of hand? How do you admit that your kids are this far out of control? Just cover it up, because how can I ever tell somebody about what's going on? 
That's what was going on in this woman's life. And you start to believe the lie that says, this is never going to get better. I've waited too long. They can't fix this now. I guess I'm just going to have to live with this and live with the consequences. It's the denial of reality. And the tumor continues to grow in your life, in your marriage, in your family, in your spiritual walk with God. And you find yourself cold and distant and you have no idea how you're going to get back. This is just for you. This is between you and God. You don't have to tell me any of this, but there's a place in your worship folder. I've got some questions. I just invite you to, to think about and ask yourself, is there anything in your life that you're ignoring, hoping it will get better on its own? Is there anything that you are hoping that no one finds out about? Is there anything in your life right now you can just honestly say, I've just given up on that? This is a conversation between you and God Maybe you today and a trusted friend. So Jesus comes to this man who's been paralyzed for 38 years. He says, you want to get well? And the guy's like, I can't. I need help getting into the water. Which I I think that's what he's implying. Are you here to help me get in the water? Which I think is just hilarious. And I can laugh at this because things turn out well for this guy. Just imagine like Guy Fieri comes up to you and says, are you hungry? You've got like a world famous chef standing in front of you and you go, Man, I am really hungry, but I don't have any quarters for the vending machine. Can you hook me up with a dollar? Really? I think the guy who's standing in front of you can take care of you a lot better than, you know, a Snickers out of the vending machine. You've got the guy standing in front of you who can heal and has healed any disease imaginable, including raising people from the dead, and you ask him if he can help you get into the water first? Really? (laughs) Jesus, I think I can do a little bit better than that. Listen to what Jesus says here, and this is where I start to see the takeaway for us. Look in verse 8. Jesus said to the man, Get up, pick up your mat, and walk. And at once the man was cured. He picked up his mat and he walked. See, I think this is where we find out what we need to do with this. The guy said to Jesus, I can't. I can't do this. There are some things that you and I legitimately cannot do. right? Like if I, if I came up to you and said, I want you to deadlift 10,000 pounds. If you said, I can't, okay. I want you to run a marathon in 20 minutes. I can't. Saying to a paralyzed man who's been paralyzed for 38 years, I want you to get up and walk. I can't. Unless it's Jesus talking to you. And then all kinds of things that are impossible suddenly become possible. So so I think the first step for us to embrace here is, is taking a fresh start is to just turn to God for help. God who can do anything. We can't save ourselves. This is like beyond ourselves. This is, you can't make yourself walk. You can't save yourself. You can't get a fresh start. But you invite God into your world, and a whole lot of things become able that were not able to be done before. Acts 3.19, it says this in the Bible. Now it's time to change your ways. Turn to God. Face God so that he can wipe away your sins, pour out showers of blessing to refresh you, and send the Messiah he prepared for you, namely Jesus. And Jesus stands right in front of you, ready, willing, and able to do what you can't do. So, leads me to my second takeaway from this, though. You've got to respond to God's direction. Faith is trust. I trust you, Jesus, but it always requires an action. You've got to do something. And this is so wise of Jesus. Jesus says, do you want to be healed? And the guy's like, I can't. Jesus says, he doesn't say, okay, your faith has healed you. Continue to lay there. (laughs) Like, get up. Take up your mat and walk. Three action things. Get up, take up, walk away. Okay? I've healed you. Now you need to do something that illustrates 
that I've healed you. You need to take action of your own. I've, I've, I've done what I need to do. Now you need to do what you need to do. I've enabled you to do what you couldn't do before. Now you act on it. Get up, take up, walk. A friend of mine is a counselor. He gave me some really wise counsel once. And um, I've, maybe you've heard it from me because I've said it to so many people since he told it to me. He says, I will never work harder for someone than they will work for themselves. Oh, it's just saved me so much grief because here's the thing. You can do, do, do for someone else, but there comes a point where if they're not willing to take initiative and do the things that they can do themselves, they're not going to get better. can heal you all day, but if you continue to show up and lay here every day like you're not healed, then what have I done for you? There's things that are within your power when God heals you. Take action on that. Go to God in prayer. Find a trusted friend. Make the appointment today with a counselor. Do whatever it is you need to do to take action on this. I mean, a fresh start's possible for 2015. It doesn't have to be like it was. Things can be different. It's not just it is what it is. All kinds of things are possible. I've seen God do miraculous things in people's lives. Ask him. Act on what he leads you to do. No matter how strong that temptation is you're facing, no matter how deep that bitterness is in your heart, no matter how overwhelming your situation is or how big the debt is or how much time or money you think you've wasted, God is great at giving fresh starts. And maybe he brought you here today so you could hear that from him. That he's not given up on you, that he's not tired of you, that he doesn't wish you would just go away, that he cares about you very much. And he would love to help you have a fresh start today. I'd invite you to pray with me right now. Father, I want to thank you that through Jesus we understand what you're like and you're not mad, you don't condemn us, you don't point your finger in our face. You understand that we're broken. And I mean, I just admit it's our fault. There's a lot of things we do that just bring our trouble on us. And I'm very thankful that despite that, you show us grace and compassion and that you show us love and mercy. And I really do ask that you would make this a day of change and a fresh start for all of us. And uh, I'm asking God that we would walk out of here today convinced that not only is this possible, but that we would look back and we would see that you did make some significant changes in our lives. I pray that we would just say yes to the love that you have for us through Jesus. The, I mean, the love that caused you to sacrifice your only son for us. Thank you for that. And I, I pray that no one would walk out of here without saying yes to that. And I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.